0: There is nothing so wonderful in the world as telling stories. Tous les matins, on essaye de traverser le miroir et de regarder le monde différemment. It is true, I am a woman. Une fois que ce saut est fait, tout devient possible.
1: Hello, I'm Charlotte Casiraghi. Welcome to the podcast of Les Rendez-vous littéraires, Rue Cambon. A place where we meet to talk about writing, to talk about books. Let's meet women writers who have just taken their first step, the most decisive, the most difficult, in the world of literature. How did their vocation call to them? What are their writing rituals? Who reads them and what do they read? And today, Erika will be hosting Patricia Lockwood.
0: I'm Erica Wagner, and it's my pleasure to introduce Patricia Lockwood and welcome her to Chanel's podcast of Les Rendezvous Littéraires, Rue Cambon. Patricia Lockwood is a writer whose work has taken many forms, though she is still in the early years of her extraordinary career. In 2013, her poem Rape Joke, published online, took the internet by storm. Horrifying, funny, angry, it was included in the 2014 edition of the Best American Poetry Series. But, as she told Slate Magazine a couple of years ago, your work can flow into the shape that people make for you, or you can try to break that shape. And so she carved her own path. Her memoir, Priest Daddy, was published in 2017 and recounts her return as an adult to the home she left as a young woman facing head-on the complexities of childhood and womanhood, of religion and sexuality. In 2019, it was named one of the 50 best memoirs of the past 50 years by the New York Times. Then, in 2021, she published her first novel, No One Is Talking About This, which traces the life of an unnamed protagonist who is extremely online, someone whose very existence is defined by their internet presence. Until that is, life itself intrudes. The novel, which was the winner of the Dylan Thomas Prize this year, asks us to consider whether real life can ever supersede the pull of the metaverse. Written in a form that echoes the hectic encounters with language and emotion we can have online, the book is immersive, just as immersive, I hope Patricia won't mind me saying, as the little blue screen of your phone. Described as real, raw and authentically absurd in The Guardian, this debut fiction further demonstrates the originality and uniqueness of her voice. Growing up, I was in many ways unfit for the real world, she said in an interview not long ago. And yet she has made herself into a powerful observer of that world, and I'm delighted to have the chance to talk to her today. Welcome, Patricia.
2: Thank you, Erica, And may I say how beautifully you pronounced the name of the podcast, which I am not going to try. So I'm very proud of you for doing that for me. Thank you so much.
0: So in the first part of this podcast, we are going to talk about your vocation as a writer. So I'll ask you to tell me about your beginnings. When did you start writing? And I wonder if
2: poetry was your first love. It was, actually, yes. I was speaking with the wonderful makeup artist, Brittany, earlier, and she was asking when I got into it, and I couldn't remember an actual time. This is the kind of thing that they ask you in interviews so much that at some point you Come up with a canned response, pretty much. And what I say is that I wrote a haiku in fifth grade, that it was about a diamond drop of rain falling from a leaf. And then I knew that that was my vocation, that I was going to be a writer. But it was just something that was always with me like the idea of god or something like that um i grew up with the language of the bible i grew up with the language of the catholic church of the liturgy of religion i think i was always drawn not just to elevated language but to an elevated idea of the human role of what i would be doing in life um i thought of it vocationally but yeah i did start out with poetry i think i didn't have the attention span for anything longer for a while and you see in this novel that I do sort of fake it a little bit. I'm like, it could be called something else. Let's be real. It doesn't have to be called a novel.
0: (laughs) Well, attention span is just a lot of things strung together, which brings me to your beginnings on Twitter. Um mm. what did it mean for you as a writer to have your work received online in the way it was you gained this huge twitter following early on for your what i would call your sly observations what did it mean to go viral in that way
2: It was interesting because the first thing that i really received attention for were my twitter sexts uh, which came about sort of in the Anthony Weiner era and were kind of fake sexts um that were very surreal sometimes involved cartoon mascots uh, that sort of thing and weren't really anything that anyone could physically do. So it took place totally in the realm of the unreal, which is where I like to operate. And receiving attention for that felt fine to me. Receiving attention for rape joke was very different. That was like the attention of the whole world was flooding in on you at once. And I would say that my experience of going viral is probably... It was more innocent and pure. I didn't receive, you know, a lot of like hate mail or death threats or anything like that. But the level of exposure that you do feel just pouring in on you, knowing that all of these people are reading this poem at the same time, that they're reading a poem at all is sort of a disconcerting thing to think of everyone in the world reading a poem at the same time. I was also living with my parents at that time. And I chronicled this a little bit in my memoir, Priest Daddy. It meant that my, my parents were going to read it, that my mother would read it because it was being posted on Facebook. So the level of exposure from the outside world was something new, but it was also very personal at home. So I felt it immediately in a very particular way.
0: Did that affect your sense of vocation as a writer, knowing from then on in you had a kind of
2: public-facing, and quite personal self? This is a good question. I do think that it gives you a conscience the first time you feel that you have helped someone through your writing. I don't know that we can say that poetry truly helps people in the material sense. Um, You know, I've written this beautiful poem about a crayon box. Is that really furthering anyone's progress through their own life? But if you write about a trauma that resonates with other people or if you write about it in such a way that they feel that they can write about their own trauma or experience in that way then i think you do grow a conscience and maybe it was then that i thought i'm helping people i could be helping people this came as a surprise to me there was a a draw about poetry that was almost you could practice it in a room alone. You could be Emily Dickinson answering to no one but like the butterflies and God. Um, and then I had this very different sense that now if I read Rape Joke at a reading, I will hear from young people afterwards um, or older people. I went to Australia and I heard from from many people who talked to me about, you know, problems in the church down there, in the archdiocese down there, that they had experienced. And they thanked me for writing about, you know, the Catholic Church's role in some of these things. So you do, you, you feel a tie between you and the people that maybe you, you don't feel when you have that sense of yourself alone in a room, you know, basically spinning like a ballerina in a music box for your own music, your own pleasure. It becomes different. As you've just alluded
0: to, you were raised in a religious household. And religion offers a framework for storytelling, I would say. As you said, you were raised with these stories from the Bible, this set of particular stories. How did you
2: break away from these stories, to find your own? I don't know that I ever did. Um, You speak about the Bible, um, and that is one way that you can use the narrative of religion. But for me, it was more liturgical, uh, as I alluded to earlier. So it was something you go into a place for an hour, and you exist in this flow of language. And there is repetition. There's elevation. There is a kind of diction that you put on like a dress or like a suit that is higher than something you normally wear. And that doesn't necessarily have to do with story. It has to do with people existing together in a place for a while. So if you think about a book as that, if you think about a poem as that, we come together in this space and something transpires. We do something with language in this space. Then you don't have to think about story at all. It can be anything you want it to be. That's fascinating to hear you say that because it makes me realize that when I
0: read your writing, I feel extremely present in the moment, like it is an experience of being, as you do when you're in the kind of experience
2: that you describe. And I will say that I made that up just now, but it rings true to me. I said earlier, I was like, sometimes you come up with a canned response that really works, but I think it's actually true and it makes sense to me. So what you're thinking about um, with a Catholic Mass is you're really thinking about time. They say that it exists in God's time and not in human time. And I think that there is a sort of time of literature that is you step into eternity or you step into the time of all the other people that have ever read this thing, that are ever going to read this thing. You step into... the the time of the person who wrote it. And that's that's a place where a lot of things overlap. So you do feel that presentness that that being there in that time. What
0: are some of the other influences on your writing? I've heard you mention the American author David Markson. I've heard you talk about W.G. Sabald. Can you
2: talk a little bit about the other writers that have guided your fictional voice? So I think that the people who have guided my fictional voice, it all goes back to poetry. Um, if I told you fictional influences or people I kept very close to me, you would be surprised. You know, sometimes it's romantic realism. It's like D.H. Lawrence type people. For me, like A.S. Byatt is one of my touch zones. And people are always surprised to hear me say that because it's like, oh, I'm not writing about a family in Yorkshire in the 50s. And, and it's unexpected to them that I would say that. But my big influences all the way back, it's, you know, the people people. people you could find on the poetry shelf at Barnes & Noble. It was Wallace Stevens, so that's my interest in tautology and sort of these conundrums that I place into my writing. It's people like Emily Dickinson, same there. It's people like uh, Elizabeth Bishop, who take you through narratives in a very different way and who show you a sort of different focus um, that you can have in poetry. So all of it goes back to that. But yeah, I mentioned David Markson a lot because he really wrote the kind of novel that is recognizable in uh, No One is Talking About This. Um, A lot of people became more attuned to it with writers like Anne Carson and with the sort of um, fragmentary fiction of the modern-day Jenny Offal and people of that nature. But for me, it goes a lot farther back. And it goes back a little bit, too, to like the, the German romantics, Lichtenberg, Peter Altenberg. It goes back to these people who wrote these little tiny micro fictions that, again, could be called something else in the Lydia Davis way. She's like, some people call this a poem, I call it a story. You get to decide.
0: Tell us about the publication process for No One is Talking About This. Did
2: it change the way you thought about yourself as a writer to be perceived as a novelist? Well, this was very crazy because I was revising it in the first year of COVID, after I had actually had COVID. So I was in a different mind space. And then it came out in, I think, February of 2021. And so everyone was still shut inside. I mean, the lucky people were shut inside and the unlucky people, you know, were going out, they were delivering our food, Um, they were being front-facing workers. And I was doing all of these strange virtual events these photo shoots in the freezing cold outside all of it very removed from my previous experience and in all of these situations i was being told that this book was successful and that people were reading it i could feel none of that shut into my home in in february 2021 so it was strange to feel yourself the subject of conversation at a time that all of that conversation was happening very very far from where you could hear it it was fitting for the book in a way, because it is something that takes place totally online, where people can't touch each other, where maybe the best case scenario is that I'm seeing your face in a recording studio down south, and uh, like that's how we're getting to communicate. So it was fitting for it, but I don't know if my sense of myself changed, uh, because I wasn't really interacting with the people who would have told me those things. You are a novelist now. You have written a novel. Why don't you give us a little flavor of this wonderful novel? Will you read a little bit for us, Patricia? Absolutely. I will give you a sample from the very beginning. And as you say, this is about a person who is trapped in the internet. That's what you need to know. She opened the portal, and the mind met her more than halfway. Inside, it was tropical and snowing, and the first flake of the blizzard of everything landed on her tongue and melted. Close-ups of nail art, a pebble from outer space, a tarantula's compound eyes, a storm like canned peaches on the surface of Jupiter's, Van Gogh's the potato-eaters, a chihuahua perched on a man's erection, a garage door spray-painted with the words, STOP! DON'T EMAIL MY WIFE! Why did the portal feel so private, when you only entered it when you needed to be everywhere? She felt along the solid green marble of the day, for the hairline crack that might let her out. This could not be forced. Outside, the air hung swagged, and the clouds sat in piles of couch stuffing, and in the south of the sky there was a tender spot, where a rainbow wanted to happen. Then three sips of coffee, and a window opened. I'm convinced the world is getting too full, lol, her brother texted her, the one who obliterated himself at the end of every day with a personal comet called Fireball. Capitalism! It was important to hate it, even though it was how you got money. Slowly, slowly, she found herself moving toward a position so philosophical even Jesus couldn't have held it, that she must hate capitalism while at the same time loving film montages set in department stores. Politics! The trouble was that they had a dictator now, which, according to some people, white, they had never had before, and according to other people, everyone else, they had only ever been having, constantly, since the beginning of the world. Her stupidity panicked her, as well as the way her voice now sounded when she talked to people who hadn't stopped being stupid yet. The problem was that the dictator was very funny, which had maybe always been true of all dictators. Absurdism, she thought. Suddenly all those Russian novels where a man turns into a teaspoonful of blackberry jam at a country house began to make sense.
0: Thank you so much. Now I'd like to turn to asking you A little bit about the process of your writing, how you get your writing out into the world. So tell us about your routine.
2: You're speaking to me. I know you're in Savannah,
0: Georgia. What's your writing setup there?
2: Well, I was saying to Brittany, again, when I was having my makeup done, uh, that it's, it's very strange to come to a recording studio and get dolled up and put on your big sweater with its sparkly buttons when normally you barely put clothes on. For me personally, I you are lucky if you see me in clothes as I'm working. I get up, I pour my little shot of cold brew espresso. I take it into my room. I range my cats around me. That's a very important ingredient to range your cats around you, including Miette, the famous, famous cat that I think Chanel herself and all... Chanel workers would approve of. And what I do is I start to read and I wait to feel that thing that Richard Hugo calls the trigger. So he wrote a book called The Triggering Town and he says basically that sometimes you will be driving through a place at night and something, there will be some trigger that you feel that, that will unleash this power. And that moment is the, the one you have to attend to. That's the moment that you can go into writing. So you have to be very adherent to that. You have to wait for it. You have to feel that opening inside your chest or the, the, the pulling of that little trigger. And then you have to go straight to the notebook. And you have to respect it. You have to start writing at that time. You can't be doing other things. You can't be scratching your cat on the head. You have to go right into the writing then.
0: How do you manage the tension you've got with your writing time? Has your public life intruded on your ability to make space for your writing? Of course, you were saying when your novel was published, we were in a time of silence,
2: but we're out in the world now. I wonder what's changed. It's true. I think it would have been different if I had been front-facing all during that time. As it is, yes, you do get more communications from people, requests from blurbs, um, requests to read books, requests to write pieces. I write um, critical essays for the LRB. I do about four of those a year. So that's something that I've been doing even before the novel came out. But yeah, I think it's more that you feel all of these little tugs. If you wake up in the morning and you check your your email first thing, then you're going to be thinking about those tugs instead of about your writing, about the book you're reading, about what you're supposed to be thinking about. So yeah, the really important thing for me is just not to look at that stuff right away and preserve that space, that, that square of morning time, where I'm only thinking about what it is my vocation to do. Do you have a first reader? How do you know when something is ready to go out into the world? My very long-suffering husband, Jason, who last night was proofing a 7,000-word essay about George Saunders' new book, is my first reader. Yes. I don't have, probably because I didn't go to college, I didn't do an MFA, I didn't get that circle of writers around me that you rely on to really give you that fresh first impression. It's always been him. We sort of came together over writing And now I just kind of like, I utilize, (laughs) I'm like, you know what, you're you have to do this, you need to find what's wrong with this piece, you need to help me out here. So I'm very comfortable with that. And if it weren't for him, I don't know, I don't know that I would show things to a lot of people, I have very definite ideas about my own internal music, what I want things to sound like what I want things to look like, and what I want the end result to be. What's the hardest thing for you? about the
0: process of writing? Is there a particular kind of thing you struggle
2: with? I think it is maintaining that attention. I am more inclined to feel those tugs than other people. So my problems are external. They are feeling and hearing those voices from the outside world that say come out to play. Um, and you you can't. You You need to be doing this particular thing. When it comes to more technical issues yes if you're writing a long piece of fiction you're going to have to put some structure in there that is maybe not natural to you if you didn't start out writing fiction if you don't maybe have a natural bent toward narrative you're going to have to find things to buttress up all of this formless microfictional writing that you're used to Um, you need to to put those things in place so that's probably true but honestly i like being inside the body of a piece of work so much that I don't think about it that way. When I'm inside it, I don't feel time. I don't feel the tugs. I don't hear the voices. If I can just keep myself in the body of the text, solving problems, then that's where I need to be.
0: That's so interesting what you say about balancing the external pull of the world with the need to create this internal space, the space of the book. And so when we turn to thinking about both the creation and then the reception of this wonderful first novel, it strikes me, of course, no one is talking about this as a very personal book. The narrator becomes successful by going viral on what she calls the portal. This is such a wonderful name for the internet. And then her sister has a baby who's seriously ill, and that pushes your narrator back into the real world there are strong parallels i know with your own life what did it mean for you to transform that into fiction and find that very tricky balance i would think
2: yes you're quite right um This is one of those things that in interviews, probably other writers would have played this closer to the vest, but I'm not that way. I say the second half of the book is largely as it happened to me. These are things that happened in my own life, in my sister's life. And what was true is that I had been working on the first half of No One Is Talking About This for several years beforehand. And what it had brought me to was a sort of attention. I was really paying a very micro attention to every single thing that was happening around me because it could be material. It could be something that could go in the book. You know when you're really really in the heart of a book, everything you look at is something that could go in the book. It's something that could be useful. You're like a hunter gatherer and you you just see berries popping out at you everywhere. All of these things could be for you. And then I flew back home to Ohio to be with my sister and and she was pregnant at that point and her life was in danger, you know, let alone her her daughter's life. And I just kept doing that. I just kept noticing. I just kept seeing these berries leaping out at me, things that I wanted to preserve. And what I didn't know at the time is that you, in those times of trauma, you forget things. You do not carry those things with you into the future, it's a it's a protective thing, I think, that our bodies do, that our minds do, that you can't remember trauma in the same way as you feel it happening, that very raw, flinching place. Um, so I think what I was partly doing, too, was recording for the future. You know, when my sister finally read the book, she said, I forgot about these things. I didn't remember these things. Then it made you feel that it had some other purpose, that it wasn't just about, you know, you paying attention, but about you creating a document that would persist in the future that would have utility.
0: Was it a different process than writing your memoir? Because in your memoir, too, in pre Daddy, of course, you're creating public version of aspects of your life for an audience. How different was the process of... I want to say saying something is fiction rather than saying something is a memoir. It's all writing. It's all storytelling.
2: Yes, you're quite right. And there were things that were similar about it. I think in Priest Daddy, Anna, no one is talking about this, I worked um, through omission. So Priest Daddy is a very outrageous story of a family at the head of which is a married Catholic priest who largely wears underwear and jams constantly on an electric guitar. And the way I shaped that was by deciding what not to include, essentially. You know, things that were too personal, that that did not belong to me, that were part of other people's stories, as we say now, in the modern mode. And this was true as well with no one is talking about this, but you felt freedom because you were saying that it was fiction because it was fiction you know their father doesn't have to be a married Catholic priest in this let's make him a cop instead there is just that little bit of elasticity that is introduced to the text that forgivingness that enters into it that made me actually feel better I didn't ever feel like I was lying about anything I felt that I was able to get closer to the truth actually because there was just that little bit of elasticity in the text I agree with you about <laughs> the creation of fiction,
0: that there's something, having written both nonfiction and fiction, fiction to me is where we can tell the truth. There's a particular kind of, of truth in fiction, and that elasticity is such a wonderful word for it. How important is the reception of your writing for you. You're now accustomed, I would guess, to to reaching an audience. Of course, when No One is Talking About This was published, as you've said, you were in this vacuum. We were all in the COVID vacuum. But there were, of course, responses to the novel. What kind of responses did you get and what did they mean to you?
2: The responses, institutional responses, were very, very positive, almost to the point that it made you afraid that they were coming for you, that soon they would be coming for you and they would be out for your blood. You can't listen to any of that and you can't... Give it any credence because you need to keep working. You need to keep working. And the only way to keep working is to feel just that little thing in the back of your mind that's like, you know, maybe maybe you haven't done anything in your life. <laughs> maybe everything up to this point is, is chaff and dross and you need to be focusing now on the thing that's that's going to, to last, that's going to be <laughs> the immortal thing. But what is important is, you know, hearing from other people. I heard from a woman who just picked up my book in a bookstore and opened it to one page and and saw the word Proteus, which is the name of the syndrome that the, the protagonist's niece has. And she thought, it can't be the same one because her brother had Proteus syndrome and had recently passed away. And it's such a rare occurrence in the world that she thought there was no way that I could be one of the other people in the world who had this experience. And when you hear from that person? That's important. Those are the things that you need to take to your heart. Um, and again, like let them give you a conscience if you want a conscience in your writing. Those are the things that will give it to you. It will not be plaudits. It will not be reviews. It will not be the critics either praising you or, again, next time coming for you, probably. You know, all of that is very changeable. It would be my inclination to never read reviews, but my husband, who loves praise, is constantly shouting lines of them from the other room to make sure that I hear it at least a little bit. It's good that one of
0: you loves praise. you <laughs> certainly you certainly deserve it. I wonder if there's a different quality and laying aside the issue of your suspicion, which I think is correct of praise from institutional sources but there's a kind of immediacy to the responses we can get online versus, responses to larger written texts. How do you navigate that
2: space? Do you crave that immediate response, I wonder? Oh, no. (laughs) No, this is the sort of thing... The weeks after your book comes out and you just start seeing your name independent of anyone you know just sort of being dropped in as a subject of conversation, you're like, now I know why Sally Rooney went offline. To be honest with you people, like, go for it, Sally. It's strange. And it's estranging. It's alienating. This was a place for play. This was the place where you felt this free creativity. And now you feel hampered on all sides by perhaps the sense that you're being watched, that you're being noticed, that people are talking about you behind closed stores, um, in other rooms of the internet. So that part is very strange. There was a period of time where I would go around to my usual, like, literary criticism haunts, and I would read my usual essays and pieces, and I would encounter my name, honestly, frequently. Just, I'm trying to read about, you know, the modernists, and suddenly here pops the name. I'm trying to read this, this analysis of the modern internet, and here I'm being invoked. That's the sort of thing I think that you either learn to draw away from it, or you become a little bit crazy. You buy into your own hype a little bit as a subject, as a topic, because that's not what you are. You're a human being. You are a citizen. You're no more than any other citizen. You need to keep that sense.
0: We now are coming towards the end of our conversation. Alas, we always close this podcast with five questions for each author. So, I know these are coming as a surprise to you. <laughs> and indeed, the first one is about surprise. So, what is the most surprising thing you've learned
2: from being a writer? Oh. I think it's what I was talking about before, that I can be helpful. I think of myself as such a consummately evil person that it's impossible to me that I could ever be helping other human beings. Part of this, again, is maybe growing up religious. You're going into confession every week and you're saying all the things that make you a dirty, filthy pig in your little sty. And to hear, I don't know, that that there is some resonance in what you've written to someone else who is just merely going about their own life and encounters you as something that that moves them along the path or that that shines a light or that helps them in some way, that was surprising. Because again, I just saw myself as a very evil person.
0: None of the rest of us do. (laughs) What would people be surprised to learn about you?
2: That I am so evil, Erica, as I was telling you just now. Now, you did say you say we ask these questions to everyone. and I said I specifically didn't look at them because I need to be surprised. Otherwise, I can't come out with the truth. I cannot prepare a response. So you're getting the real deal. Okay. I like it. Evil.
0: Okay. Patricia Lockwood. Evil. Now we know. (laughs) What is your idea? Of perfect happiness. I hope you're going to answer
2: this question with something really evil, I have to say. It's incredibly evil. Yes, it is to be, again, half clothed in my room in the middle of the body of the text in that perfect flow state where time does not exist, where you feel no tugs, you hear no voices, and you are just basically one with the pen. And you're moving all the little elements around, elements even more basic than words, syllables, letters, smaller than those things, atoms, you know, pica, just moving them around and letting them move together into the picture.
0: What advice would you give to someone who wants to express their
2: creativity? Wow, become evil. So the thing that has really helped me is, again, the evil thing. Um, You know, thinking of what we were talking about earlier, instead of needing to write a story... Think about it as a place that you're going to, and maybe someone else will show up and maybe they won't. And in that place, you're just going to do what you want for a while. You're going to talk about what you want in the way that you want to, and if someone else shows up, that's fine. But if not, you're still going to be there doing your thing.
0: In one word, how would you like to be remembered as a writer? And I'm going to take away evil. Can't, can't have evil again. <laughs>
2: So the first word that came to my mind was glorious, which is really embarrassing. I, I think that I want the word glorious to be, um, to be written on my tombstone, my writerly tombstone. Or when I go into Westminster Abbey, which I assume is going to happen for me at some point, I just want glorious uh, above my tomb. Yeah, I like that. It's almost as bad as evil. You should have just let me say evil.
0: I think we can have glorious <laughs> and evil. Glorious. I will, I'll give you. I'll give you both. And then one final question, if you can approach it.
2: What would you like your second novel to look like? Can you tell us anything about that? This is interesting because everyone very generously talks about my first novel. And I'm like, you're acting like there's going to be a second one. And honestly, there might not. It might be a one-off thing. Now, I am working on fiction, but I've more conceived of it as little short stories that sort of weave together and intermingle. So I don't have another sense of a second novel. Now, there was one that I had in my mind for a while. You know how you'll just have a novel in your mind? And it was set in a place called the Explorer's Club. But it was both in the afterlife and outer space. And lots of metaphysical things happened there. But then Susanna Clarke wrote Piranesi, and it was basically the same thing. So I'm like, you know what? We'll just leave Explorer's Club to the dustbin of history. (laughs)
0: Well, I know whatever we get next from you will be just wonderful. Thank you so much, Patricia Lockwood, for joining us on the Rendezvous Literaire podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, and I hope we have a chance to talk again soon. And I can't wait to read whatever your next book is.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much, Erica. Thank you for having
1: me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rendez-vous littéraire Rue Cambon podcast. To discover more about it, you will find images, links, and references on the Chanel website. À bientôt!